0: All right, well, good morning. morning. It's good to be back. I missed being with you guys last week. This time, we're going to go ahead and take up our regular offering. And just a note today is the day in which we're going to collect the Lottie Moon offering to support our international missionaries. But that's going to come at the end of the service. So, two offerings today. Uh, This one right now, I ask the ushers to go ahead and come forward, is going to be the regular giving of our tithes and offerings. And then at the end, we'll have that special time uh, to give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, in which 100% of that offering at the end will go to support our missionaries on the field advancing the gospel. Let's pray for this offering now. Father God, we do thank you for the privilege it is to come into uh, this place, gather together with your people as a family united under Christ, to be able to sing praises to you, to hear from your word, and be able to participate In your mission, even through our gifts now, I pray that these gifts would be an offering of worship unto you, in which we give with glad hearts, and that you would receive this offering and use it to multiply your efforts to bring glory and fame to your name. It's in Christ that I pray. Amen. 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 Well, did you all enjoy last week? I heard some good things about Cody and Casey Evans tag-teaming. Uh, thankfully, they didn't get into any kind of brotherly brawl up here. I was a little nervous about that. Um, I was nervous for Cody, especially, if that would have happened. Um, but, but yeah, I'm excited that they got that opportunity, and I heard just great things that you all were encouraged as you saw uh, two of your homegrown boys, uh, boys that you have watched grow up, proclaiming the faith and standing firm. Uh, for what they believe, and, and the, the resurrection, the power that that is, how crucial the resurrection is to our faith. So I hope that you were encouraged by that. I'll give you a little bit of a preview of kind of what's ahead. Today is actually uh, a little bit sad for me. Today is the last day as we study through the book of Luke. Um, you know, So we've been in the book of Luke for seven months now, and today we're wrapping it all up. And, but I am excited that next week... We're going to start our Christmas series. It's a sermon series that I've entitled Hope for Peace. Uh, Peace is something... Yeah, sorry, I didn't make that announcement. (laughs) I was really wanting Jackson to stay in here because he looked like he was ready to just amen a lot this morning. Um, But yeah, children, you guys are dismissed. So the sermon series is titled Hope for Peace and it's just going to be a three-week sermon series. Uh, Peace is something that that everyone is longing for, um, and we have the hope for peace in Jesus Christ. So what I would invite you to do, what I would challenge you to do, is to invite someone with you these next uh, two to three Sundays. Um, we're going to be singing a lot of Christmas carols, a lot of uh, kind of Christmas t- tradition that we're going to bring into the services. Uh, the sermon's going to be a little shorter, so you can tell your friend to come, and they're not going to be just have to sit forever listening to some preacher, Um, but around Christmas time, statistics show that people are more apt to actually attend a church than even around Easter. So this is a great window of opportunity for our church to go out, invite your friends, invite your family that don't usually go to church, to come with you, bring them with you. You know, you have a great way just to start the conversation. Say, hey, do you have any traditions that you like to celebrate around Christmas time? He listen to what their traditions are and then share with them, hey, one of my family's traditions is to attend church, where we remember that Jesus Christ is the reason we celebrate. Would you like to come with me? I would love for you to come with me. So be thinking about who you can invite this week to come with you next Sunday as we begin that sermon series, talking about our hope for peace. All right, well, let's go ahead and begin our final wrap-up, our final installment in this sermon, in the series of the book of Luke. Just in case you want to go back and listen to any of the sermons in the book of Luke, most of them are on our website. And so I encourage you to go to our website. It's fbiker.org. There's resources there for you, suggested readings for you. So if you haven't checked it out, I do invite you to check that out. Um, That is just a resource there for you. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, I encourage you to go to the last chapter, chapter 24, in the book of Luke. And like I said, we've been studying through the book of Luke together for the past seven months. And now, while seven months in one book might seem like a really long time, um, we haven't been delving into every detail. To delve into every detail would actually take years of Sundays to cover all the material in the book of Luke. Instead, I've been Going through, painting with a broad brush, highlighting the main themes, capturing the big picture. And I've I've heard from a few of you that you're not accustomed to a preacher uh, preaching for 42 verses, Kenny? Was that 44 44 verses in one sermon? Right, I've been taking large chunks, sometimes chapters at a time, uh, and, and preaching them in one sermon. And so some of you aren't used to that, you're used to more of sermons like I'll be preaching starting next week, where it's just a few verses. But the reason that I've been doing that is because I've, again, wanted us to, to capture this broad sweep, capture this big picture of what's going on in Luke, and I've also wanted to be modeling for you how you can read Scripture for yourself, to gain understanding for it. Uh, context is something that is so important. When you're reading your Bibles at home, you need to understand where that verse that you're reading fits into the the storyline, the context of not only the book itself, such as the book of Luke, but the the Bible as a whole because the Bible is a unified storyline. It begins in creation and then there's the fall where man sins. God promises to redeem us he sends Jesus as the fulfillment of that promise, and in the end, we are restored along with all creation unto God. So, as you read and wherever you're reading, you can ask, How does this fit into that broader, bigger picture? So, today I want us to, to consider how we read the Bible. Consider how we approach the Bible. Think about the way you typically approach the Bible. What's the point? What's its purpose? What's it all about? I imagine that you read the Bible a bit differently than you read Sports Illustrated. Than you read Cooking Light, a recipe book, the daily newspaper, a romantic novel. I imagine that you bring different questions to the Bible than you do these other types of literature. For instance, when you're reading the daily newspaper, the local newspaper, the questions you bring might be, well, what did the city council decide? What did the school board decide on that decision? Who won the men's varsity basketball game last night? Who was the leading scorer? These are the type of questions we ask when we're reading the local newspaper. Those aren't the questions that you ask when reading the Bible. When you click on the Facebook, you look at it on your phone, you're reading your, your news feed, you're asking the questions, what, what have my friends been up to lately? That's not the same question that you ask when you open up your Bible to read it. So what questions do we ask when we approach Scripture? Well, as we've been going through the book of Luke, The question that I've been pressing upon you to ask is the question that was most important for Luke as he wrote, and it is the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's ultimately what we've been after these past seven months. Luke himself, he had had asked this question, and he, being a doctor, Carefully investigated all the claims that were being made about Jesus. And after he came to his conclusions, he wrote this book that we've been studying. So, what does it matter that we ask, who is Jesus? Well, it matters because it informs who we are supposed to be as his followers. If today you are professing Christian, you are professing follower of Jesus, that means you need to know what it looks like to follow Jesus. That means you need to know who Jesus was. So we don't want to know about Jesus just out of our historical curiosity. We want to know more about Jesus because understanding Him, who He was and what He did, affects how we live today one of the themes throughout the book of Luke is that an extraordinary Christ whom we have in Jesus compels extraordinary devotion right we saw that that an extraordinary Christ compels extraordinary devotion but the question who is Jesus it's it's not just a question for a gospel book like Luke, okay? In the beginning of the New Testament, you have your four books that we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those obviously talk about the life and ministry of Jesus. And so it's, it's pretty clear that we should be asking the question, who is Jesus when reading those books? But the point that I want to make today is that we should be asking that same question, who is Jesus no matter where we're reading in Scripture? Even in the Old Testament, that was written hundreds, if not thousands of years before Jesus actually came. I want to make this point because it is the point that Jesus himself makes in the greatest Bible lesson ever taught. Right? We're going to read that today, the account of the greatest Bible lesson that has ever been taught in all of human history. So go there with me. It's in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. Luke 24, verse 13. This is after the resurrection, and it says that that very day, two of them, those are two disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleophas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priest and our rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. He was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Look at verse 36. And they were talking about these things. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. from on high. All right. Well, in these two stories, the one where Jesus is walking with two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then when he appears among their midst in Jerusalem, it says that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? I mean, not only to see the risen Savior, but for him to be opening up the scriptures, opening up the Bible and saying, Let me tell you what it's all about. Right? Ever been reading like Leviticus and been like, What in the world is this about? You know, there you would have Jesus himself saying, Let me show you, let me tell you, let me explain to you what this book is all about. Now understand that The Hebrew scriptures that Jesus used, that his disciples used, before the New Testament was written, was classified into three different categories. This might be a little nerdy, but hang with me. There were three categories. There was the Law of Moses. Moses was the writer, the author of that. Those are the first five books of the Bible that we have. And then there were the Prophets. And then the third category were the writings, or sometimes just referred to as the Psalms, as it was here. Right, so when Luke writes that Jesus explained to them what was written about him in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms, he's essentially telling us that Jesus is explaining to the disciples that the entire Old Testament points to him. The entire Old Testament Every single bit of the Old Testament is about Jesus. That's what Jesus is explaining. That's what Jesus is showing here. Now, this might seem odd. Because when you open up your Bibles in English, you don't ever find the name Jesus written on the page. But Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And so, long before he was born as a baby in Bethlehem, he was at work in human history. And there are four different ways that we find Jesus in the Old Testament. So I want to give you those to help you when you are reading your Old Testament. Four different ways that we find Jesus in the Old Testament. The first way is that sometimes Jesus is predicted in the Old Testament. Sometimes Jesus is predicted in the Old Testament. This is the most familiar, the most common way that we understand Jesus in the Old Testament. For example, 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the prophet Micah in Micah 5-2 predicted that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. 700 years before it actually happened. The prophet Zechariah predicted that he would be portrayed. For 30 pieces of silver. The exact amount that Judas would receive to betray Jesus. Was predicted some 700 years before it actually happened. Isaiah 53 predicts Jesus' innocent suffering. That he would be crushed for our iniquities. That he would be our substitute. Psalm 22 gives us a vivid picture including the very words that Jesus would speak from the cross. And Psalm 2 predicts that Jesus would one day rule over all the nations, and all kings of the earth would bow down to him. So these predictions were signposts pointing the way, helping us to identify that Jesus is the Messiah. And they give us evidence that Jesus is true and valid, Right? Unlike any other religious leader, other people could look to these predictions made hundreds of years ago and then testify that Jesus was God's sent Messiah even at his birth. If you remember, when we started our study of the book of Luke, you had Simeon who took Jesus in his arms and says, I have seen God's salvation. These predictions and their fulfillment in Jesus reveal that God is the one who has the power to orchestrate history according to his will. But, of course, not every verse in the Old Testament is a prediction of the Messiah to come. And so how else is Jesus to be found in the Old Testament? Well, number two, sometimes Jesus is pictured or portrayed in the Old Testament. So sometimes Jesus is pictured in the Old Testament. Consider the story of David and Goliath, for example. Most of us are familiar with that story. Uh, When I played football in high school, some of the local churches would provide pregame meals uh, for the the varsity team uh, before our games, and uh, during those pregame meals, the youth pastor would always get up and give us a pregame speech. Now, a lot of you are familiar with the high school that I went to. Went to Watauga High in Boone. Not exactly a football powerhouse right? Um, <laughs> just not. In fact, I, I've probably played in more homecoming games than any other person. Uh, do you know why? Because people always want to schedule a weak opponent to play their homecoming game. Uh, in the words of Cody and Casey, they want someone that is weak sauce, all right? Um, and Watauga was weak sauce, right? We, we were always the underdog. Everybody thought that they could beat up on us, so they would schedule us for their homecoming games. We were always the underdog. And so can you imagine what story those youth pastors often told us before the game? David and Goliath, Right? Every time, they were telling us about David and Goliath and saying, you guys can go out and you can beat your opponent. You guys can win, even though that you're predicted to lose by like 70 points. You can win. Well, most people do think of the story of David and Goliath as about God helping you overcome the impossible, giant struggles in your life. And there's certainly merit in that. There's certainly truth in that. You know, in the New Testament, Scripture even says that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. But the true meaning of the story in David and Goliath, it's much richer, much more glorious than just you can win a football game. The story of David and Goliath is actually a picture of Jesus Christ. Well, how so? Consider how David represents Jesus. See, most of the time we read the story and we want to ask, who should I be like? Well, we don't want to be like Goliath because he got his head chopped off, right? So we're like, oh, we want to be like David. And we see how David was faithful and he trusted God, and so we're like, okay, I need to be like David and I need to just trust God. Well, that's a good example. But but first, before we go there, Let's ask, how does David picture Jesus? How does David portray Christ? Well, if you remember the story, they're out there on the battlefield. The battle lines have been drawn, and all of Israel is scared to death. They're shaking in their boots in fear of this huge giant named Goliath who taunts them. And and Goliath, he, he makes this kind of bargain. He says, I tell you what, you send one of your men to fight me, and whoever wins, me or him, that's going to represent victory for that nation. So when David goes out to fight Goliath, he is fighting as a representative for all of Israel. If David loses against Goliath, then Israel must become the servants and slaves of the Philistines. There's everything at stake here. And all hope looks dim. And God's promise to make Israel a great nation and David a king looks very, very dim. Well, How does David choose to fight Goliath? Does he choose to strap on Saul's armor, the king who actually should have been fighting for his people? No. Instead, he, he chooses a, a little boy's weapon. He chooses a sling and a few pebbles. And he goes out there with no armor at all. He's weak. He's vulnerable. And he defeats Goliath. Now compare that to Christ, who is our true king and who fights our enemy of death on our behalf. He is our representative. And how does Jesus fight? Jesus fought the battle by becoming weak himself by dying on a cross. Yet through his submission and through his sacrifice, he wins the victory for us all. That's just one example of how the Old Testament pictures Jesus. So sometimes the Old Testament predicts Jesus, sometimes it pictures Jesus, and third, sometimes Jesus is literally present in the Old Testament. Jesus literally shows up on the scene in actual recorded historical events. I'm going to use Genesis 16 as an example. If you you want to flip there, I invite you to. Genesis 16. As I mentioned, our tendency with stories like David and Goliath is to approach it with a, with a, a me centered approach, really, where we're asking, Where am I in this story? Who should I be like in this story? And while that's not completely wrong, it seems to miss this first step of, of asking, Where is God? Where is Christ? And so, a lot of times that you hear these stories from the Old Testament and the sermons and the Bible lesson end up just being a be-like sermon. Be like. Be like Abraham. Be like David. Be like Moses. Be like Noah. And, and we treat the Old Testament as, as stories that give us moral examples and, and really nothing more than that. Well, there's a problem with that. And the problem with that is that some of these great heroes of the faith failed miserably sometimes. They actually lived very ungodly lives at, at, at certain times. For instance, in Genesis 16, we learn that Abram, who would later become Abraham, had become frustrated and impatient with God. He was 86 years old and had not yet had a son. So he and his wife, they, they decided to take things in their own hands, and Abram sleeps with Sarai's servant, Hagar, And Hagar gets pregnant. The story reads like a segment from the Jerry Springer show. There's adultery and there's jealousy. And Sarai hates Hagar and abuses her. And so Hagar runs away and she has no place to go. So I imagine maybe you'll think twice next time before you tell your kid, hey, be like Abraham. But then we read in Genesis 16 that when Hagar was in the wilderness running from Sarai, the angel of the Lord appears to her. Who is this angel of the Lord? Hagar is in complete distress. She she doesn't know what she's going to do next. She has no place to go. And the angel speaks as only God can speak. He promises to Hagar that he will give her many children. The angel knows Hagar's future. She knows she has a future and she knows the future of her son. We don't even know that Hagar knew that she had a son. She says in verse 13, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. She calls him the God of seeing. What a great comfort this was to Hagar. And this angel of the Lord was none other than Christ himself. Who had shown up on the scene of human history out of his compassion for this outcast Egyptian slave who was distressed and had nowhere to go. So in the Old Testament, any time that you come across that phrase, the angel of the Lord, that is Jesus Christ appearing on the scene of human history before he was born in Bethlehem. And these appearances, they, they teach us about Christ's character much as... Luke has taught us about his character. The compassion that the angel of the Lord showed Hagar as an outcast, Egyptian slave, is the same compassion that Jesus came and he showed in Luke to outcasts like the lame man, the leper, the Gentile satyrian slave, the widow of Nain whose son had died. The compassion he showed to the hated tax collectors who chose to follow him and the compassion he showed to the guilty criminal dying on the cross beside him. So in the Old Testament, Jesus He's sometimes predicted. Sometimes he's pictured. Sometimes he's actually literally present. And then here's how all of Scripture points to Jesus, even the most obscure passages that seem to have no connection. It is, fourthly, that throughout all of Scripture, Jesus is the God who is always pursuing his people. Jesus is always pursuing his people. Scripture reveals to us that the God who is unlike any other God, there is no other God in all the world religions who pursue people. In all other world religions, it's up to the people to pursue their God, to follow rules, follow rituals in order for that God to be pleased with them. But not so our God. Our God is. Pursues his people. Even the rules and the laws that our God gives, it's an indicator that he wants to have a relationship with us. He wants community with us. He doesn't hide himself, but he makes himself known. And Jesus is this very God. The God whom we come to know in the Old Testament, the God who is our protector, our provider, our creator, is Jesus. He is the God who has come to this very earth to save you and save me. In Luke 19:10, Jesus Himself declares the reason He came, and He says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. To seek and to save the lost. Jesus is like the Good Shepherd who leaves the 99 to go and find the one lost sheep who had wandered away, brings the sheep back, and then rejoices that he has been found. Jesus is like the woman who has 10 coins and loses one and sweeps through her whole house, and when she finds the one, she rejoices and celebrates. Jesus is like the father who rejoices and throws a party for his rebellious son when he returns home, and then he goes out on the porch, and he beckons the older, bitter brother to come inside. Jesus is the Savior who began a journey to Jerusalem knowing that there he would be crucified. And he willingly, voluntarily gave his life so that we might be saved from the wrath of God. Luke has shown us that Jesus is the God who pursues. So in all the Bible, so all in all, the Bible is not just a book filled with advice or moral examples or ancient wisdom, though it certainly has that. It is ultimately a book that announces good news. Good news that the God of the universe has done great things on your behalf. The God of the universe has come near, has pursued you. It's the story of the God who created the world and promises to rebuild it out of the mess that we've made it. And without Jesus, this story makes no sense. Without Jesus, all the promises are left unfulfilled. Without Jesus, this story has no bearing in our lives. It it doesn't connect. But the Bible tells a story that we can find ourselves a part of. Because the one who watched over Hagar is the one who watches over us. The apostles' Lord and Savior is our Lord and Savior. The Jesus that Luke lived his life for is the Jesus that we are called to live our lives for. The God who pursues throughout Scripture is the God who pursues you today. So reflect back over the last seven months. How has God pursued you? How's God been pursuing you? What, what have you learned and what, what difference has it made in your life? I've had the privilege of being able to just this week look back over my notes over these past seven months and reflect over what God has been showing me as I've been preparing these sermons. And, and I thought it would be appropriate just to share with you a little bit of of how God has been pursuing me through this series in the Book of Luke. One of the areas uh, in, in my life um, that God has just exposed, He's revealed my heart to me as I've been reading the Book of Luke is is that I have this love for comfort this desire for comfort that often gets in the way of my obedience and my commitment to following Jesus, right? I I want to just coast through life, um, coast through each day with no trouble, no conflict, just as as easy as possible. I just want to do my own thing, not have anyone uh, ask me to to explain what I'm doing, I just want them to be cool with it. I and, and so what this ends up looking like is that it ends up looking that I don't always speak words of correction when I need to. When someone is telling me about their life and I can clearly see that, that they are living their life that is not in accordance with the way Christ wants them to live, sometimes I just, I just remain silent and I don't speak up to them. I don't love them enough to tell them the truth because it's just more comfortable for me just to be silent. Sometimes I don't always turn conversations towards heart matters and towards eternal matters because it's more comfortable to just talk about the weather for 30 seconds and then go about my day. Entering into others' lives can get messy and uncomfortable. And I have this desire to just have a nice, comfy, cozy life. But Luke's gospel blows apart my ambition to have a comfortable life. I think back to Luke 6, where Jesus is giving the Beatitudes. He's preaching about his values of his kingdom, and he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. My desire for a comfortable, comfy, cozy American life is a failure to believe in those values. It's a failure to believe in the truth that Jesus said that when you suffer for my name's sake, you are truly blessed. See, Jesus, he gave his disciples this radical freedom from the need to demand appreciation or respect or fairness or repayment. And that freedom allows us to take risk, to love others, to enter into their messy lives, to even be hurt by them, but to find true blessing in that. It's so cliche that following Jesus requires us to get out of our comfort zones, but, but it's true, and Luke has shown me that. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and to take up our cross, he says that whoever lives their life seeking what they can gain, they're going to end up losing it all in the end. But whoever surrenders their life to Jesus, whoever gives their life over to Him, whoever says, all right, God, do with me whatever you want, is the person who will find true life and who will be able to keep life for all eternity. You know, I've been thinking about, well, what does it mean to take up your cross? Uh, Kenny and his life application group raised a great question a couple weeks ago. He says, You know, what is my cross? What is your cross that you are called to take up each day? When I think about what my cross is, my cross is the multiple opportunities that I have to say no to my desire for comfort in order to love someone else. Your cross is the multiple opportunities that you have to die to yourself to say no to your desires, your wants, in order to love somebody else. Taking up your cross is sacrificing your desires for the good of another. And such opportunities, they come in the most ordinary ways. It could be something as simple and as ordinary as, as getting up out of bed in the middle of the night to, to get my wife a, a glass of water if she's thirsty. Right? That is a real sacrifice of my comfort in order to serve her. And that's such a small, small, small sacrifice. Maybe it shouldn't even be classified as a sacrifice. But it's those little moments in each day that God uses to pursue you, to mold you, to be more like his son, Jesus. Luke has highlighted for me that I must come to the point where I can pray as Jesus prayed, not my will be done, but yours, Father. Your will be done. Luke has impressed upon my mind and heart a little harder that I'm not called to live as a resident to, to make a name for myself, to establish myself, but I'm called as an ambassador for Jesus to live as a missionary for Him, to represent Him and make much of Him. So how has God been pursuing you? Uh, another way, just briefly, God's been pursuing me is, is He's shown me how sin has a very serious effect of blinding us. You know, as we read through the book of Luke, Jesus was the hardest on the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious elite. And these were the guys who had the most education, the most knowledge about the Bible. And so that has been a humble reminder to me that I cannot equate my education and my knowledge of Scripture with actual obedience. There's a real danger in agreeing with Scripture and agreeing to say, yes, I, I believe that's true, but then never actually living it out. The danger is that we become deceived like those Pharisees, and we think that because we agree with Scripture that, that we're okay with God, but really, if we do not applying it, if we're not living it out, if we're not being obedient, then we're just like those Pharisees. We're blinded to the fact that we're trying to do things for God, but we're completely off base And we will, in the end, be condemned. There's more ways that God has been pursuing me. and That just gives you a taste. But but I want you to consider, how has God been pursuing you? Perhaps it's it's a sin in your life that he's saying, get rid of it. Abandon your sin. Perhaps it's a circumstance in your life that's just hard. And he's just calling you to hang in there. He's just calling you to persevere. He's just calling you to keep the faith. And through that, He is going to fulfill His promise in you that He is going to use those hard times to mold you into the person that He wants you to be, who is like His Son, Jesus. Or perhaps God is pursuing you through an opportunity that's before you. An opportunity that He has presented for you to take to latch on to, to do something, to help lead other people to know this Jesus, this God who pursues. How has God been pursuing you? Let's pray. Father, we we are humbled um, that you, such a great, mighty, holy, powerful God, stoop so low as to come to this earth in the form of man and and to pursue us, to seek and to save we who were lost, we who were rebellious, we who, who spurned your name and, and, and you died for us so that we might know true life. Father, I pray that as we come to your word, we will realize that you speak, you reveal, you make yourself known so that we might know how we ought to live our lives. Father, I pray that we would be a people who are reflective, a people who are vigilant over the desires in our heart, and that we would seek to to bring them into conformity under your will, that we would truly live for your will and not our own. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Well, now we have this time of response, and as Baxter sings, I invite you to stand. Continue to reflect upon how God has been pursuing you. If you want to come up here and you want to pray at the front, uh, I encourage you to do that. If you want to pray at your seat, I encourage you to do that. If you just want to sing out, sing praises to our Lord, please do that. I'll be here at the front. If you want to talk to me, if you want me to pray for you, just grab me, and I'll be glad to do that. You respond as Baxter leads us.
1: Yeah, it's on. Um, let me move up on the stage. Our pastor search team comes to you with exciting news. We want you to mark your calendar for January 12th and 13th. During that time, on the 13th, we have a pastoral candidate who will be here to meet with various teams. Uh, to be introduced to him and us, uh, he to us and us to him. And during that time, we want to discuss the team jobs and how he will fit into uh, our church. Uh, That, uh, on Saturday the 12th, we will do uh, meet and greet from about 10 until 3 with various specific teams coming in, Uh, have a pretty busy day. Saturday night, the 12th, from about 6 until 8, we will have a covered dish supper here at the church where you, as a church body, will get to meet and greet his family. Uh, All of that, of course, hinges on whether it snows or not, so pray for no snow. If we do have snow, then our snow date's going to be the 19th and the 20th. On that Sunday morning, uh, the 13th, he will preach a trial sermon. We will have a business meeting, and we will have a vote on that candidate. Prior to that, I'm going to start there and back up. On January the 6th, I will give you a fact sheet about this candidate. Uh, also, we will give you what's called a covenant agreement, uh, what the obligations of the church will be, salary, etc. And what the obligations of the pastor will be. We will have opportunity during that time to go over that completely. uh, Let you uh, ask questions. We will try to answer as many as possible. Do those kinds of things. Back up a week before that. On December the 30th, you will have a second official notice of that business meeting. I'm giving you the first one today. And then... According to our Constitution, we need to give you at least two uh, official notices, so we will do that. I will give you a little bit of information today about our candidate so that you'll begin to think about him. He is less than 40 years old. He is married uh, with kids who will be in elementary school. He is a graduate of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He has slightly over five years experience as a senior pastor. He also has uh, slightly over three years experience as an associate pastor, uh, youth minister, and children's minister. Now, I can't give you any more than that. I would love to be able to just lay it all out for you today, but I can't. And here's the reason. His church does not know that he is in talks with us, and that he may be leaving that church. So we want to maintain the confidentiality of his ministry. If his church were to find out that he were leaving, that would automatically destroy any ministry that he has from there on out, and we want to be uh, good stewards of that. In fact, I think something that showed us a little bit of our candidate's heart when we talked about how quickly we could do um, trial sermon and those kinds of things. He said, I don't want to uh, resign from my church right before Christmas. That would not be a good thing. He says, I love those people. It's going to be one of the hardest things I've ever had to do to resign. So I don't want to do it before Christmas. So that's why we're waiting as long as we are. And we're going to maintain that confidentiality another thing that i need to mention to you because i think there will be some confusion along the way uh, when we take our vote on the 13th according to the constitution uh, only active members of our church who are 13 years old or older may vote now if you are a member of our sunday school it does not necessarily mean that you're a member of our church. So we want to clear up that confusion. A member of the church is defined uh, as someone who has made a profession of faith in Christ, who has been baptized, who has requested membership in our church, and at a business meeting has been affirmed as a member by vote. So, Only those folks who fit that criteria will be able to vote. Now, if there's any confusion about that, my wife and the membership team will have a member's listing, and you can check with her um, after lag group today or any other Sunday between now and Christmas just to make sure that uh, we're clear as to who is a member and who is not. That will be a written ballot Secret Ballad. Uh, We'll give you all the kinds of information we can as we get to that point. Uh, But we are excited. This is a unanimous choice by our nine-member search team. Uh, We've met with this candidate uh, twice. We've heard him preach on CD. We've heard him preach live. Uh, We've just had great opportunity to meet he and his family. And so we are indeed very excited about the future of our church.
2: Thank you, Jimmy. Um, As far as uh, our announcements for this week, uh, Scott McDowell uh, is our Deacon of the Week, so please uh, contact Scott uh, if you have any needs. Uh, Women on Mission, thank you for saving us postage. Uh, As far as uh, sending out our Christmas cards, if you'd like to send your Christmas cards uh, by way of our Women on Mission, uh, the post office, uh, it's at the back table. Um, Also, there's a mission trip uh, to New Jersey uh, coming up in January, so if you're interested, see uh, Brother Fess. And I'm really looking forward to uh, Sunday, December 23rd at 6 o'clock, seeing uh, the FBI Kids presentation of Noel the First, so please mark that on your calendar. Um, do not forget that we do have an opportunity to serve as a church uh, with the Salvation Army uh, on Christmas Day at 4.30, so if you'd like to volunteer uh, for that ministry, please see Rose Gladwin, and Christmas caroling uh, on December 18th, uh, we're going to meet at 6.30, and we're going to go out and uh, sing a few uh, Christmas carols to our, uh, those of our church who are shut in, uh, so we'll take a little Christmas joy to them. Other than that, uh, Brother Vernon wanted me to announce that the Wisdom Walkers uh, will be meeting at uh, Miss Christine's house uh, Tuesday at 10 o'clock for brunch, and um, you need to meet uh, Brother Vernon here at uh, 945 if you don't know the way uh, to Miss Christine's. I had to apologize to Miss Christine this morning. Uh, I had missed an entire month's worth of her announcement of Christmas at Christine's, so after she released me from the Cobra Clutch, thankfully... She forgave me for that. So I really appreciate that. And the fact you didn't put me in the figure four leg lock on that. So thank you, Miss Christine. If you get a chance to go by and eat. She said it's not just for the wisdom walkers. You know, some of you college kids, if you're home Tuesday, if you've never been fed in your life, Miss Christine and some of her friends will flat fatten you up. Uh, I think Santa Claus will probably be there as well. So uh, thank you, Miss Christine, for forgiving me for not announcing yours. Also, uh, we have another uh, opportunity as a church to minister To one of our members, family members, uh, Jonathan Brown was injured um, in a motorcycle accident. So, if you're seeing, uh, interested in helping out, uh, please see Danielle Arnie. Uh, Their family's got uh, a neat way uh, for us to help uh, him out. So, if you would just see Danielle after church and handbells at five o'clock. And I think that's all the announcements. Okay, I'll get back to Pastor Brown.
0: All right, now we have a, um, a wonderful opportunity to do our Lottie Moon. And I just want to say that, that God is at work uh, with First Baptist Eichert. He has plans um, for this church that, that I am excited about. And so, um, tell you a little bit more about the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Um, this is, again, a wonderful opportunity. Most of you are familiar with it, uh, in which every single penny that is given to this offering is going to support the missionaries sent by Southern Baptist churches who are now on the field doing the work of advancing the gospel. And, and there's a few statistics that I wanted to, um, to share with you. But so, as a Southern Baptist church, you are currently supporting 4,870 international missionaries. 4,870 international missionaries. And among these missionaries, they are in 787 unreached people groups. So there are 787 unreached people groups who are being engaged with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now that's incredible. That really is incredible. That is reason to celebrate because what an unreached people group means is it means that among that people group, among that population, there are less than 2% who are believing Christians. Practically, what that means, because most of these are in undeveloped uh, countries, is that if a person among those people groups wanted to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ, they would have to walk outside of their community. They would have to travel for perhaps days, perhaps weeks, perhaps even months before they even encountered someone who could explain to them the gospel who could open up a Bible to them and read it to them. And even then, when they had journeyed so long to get to that person who had a Bible, who knew the gospel, the chances of them understanding that person might be slim because they would probably speak a different language. And so we have missionaries who are targeting 787 of those unreached people groups who are in their culture, who are working to plant churches in their culture, get the gospel, get the scriptures translated in their language and in their dialect so that those people may know the good news of Jesus Christ. So that is the exciting part that this offering, as you give, you are being a part of that work. But the flip side of that is that there are still 3,167 people groups not yet engaged. 3,167 people groups not yet engaged. And so there is great need not only for money to support the missionaries who are there, but there is great need for more missionaries. Jesus himself said it best in Luke 10, verse 2. He says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray. Pray earnestly, he says, to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So here's, here's what we're going to do. Have you prepared your offering for the Lottie Moon? If you haven't, go ahead and, and, and get out your checkbook, get out your wallet. Uh, if you don't have any form to payment, make a commitment to go online today, and you can pay online. There's a link from our website um, to be able to, to give to the Lottie of Moon offering. If you want to give to something that is going to help advance the gospel, this is the best place to give, I'm convinced of. And so what we're going to do here is um, they're going to play a video, and... Take your offering with you. Bring it up here to this box that you see on the stage. When you drop it into this box, you're not done. Then pick up one of these sheets of paper, half sheets of paper that are beside the box. And what is on here is um, just a, a little highlight of a country and the missionary work that's going on in there. So take that card. And right now, before you stick it in your Bible and take it home and you lose it, take that card either by yourself or with your family. And find a place in this gymnasium and pray for that country, for those missionaries. Alright, so everybody understand? Let's cue the video, and then we're going to come, bring your offering, drop it in the box, grab a piece of paper, and pray for that person right now. So, um, there's, there's really no order to do this,